This is a Brain Channel program from the Department of Neurosciences at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. Visit us at uctv.tv brain to explore cutting-edge research, treatment options for conditions related to the nervous system, and the inner workings of the human mind. Greetings, Bill Mobley for the Brain Channel, and we're back today talking about Alzheimer's disease again, and, and this time we're really going to focus on the really interesting story about genes in Alzheimer's disease. I'm here with Dr. Douglas Galaska, who's professor of neurosciences, uh, director of the Memory Disorders Program at UCSD, and also the associate director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Doug, welcome. We're very pleased to have you here. Tell us a little bit about your background and, and uh, the work that you do at UCSD. Um, so I'm a um, neurologist um, with a special interest in problems related to memory, aging, and other types of um, neurological problems um, with a particular focus on Alzheimer's disease. Um, as part of my clinical research, I um, have been involved in trying to identify markers of um, when people may be at greatest risk for developing the earliest signs of Alzheimer's disease, developing ways to measure risk overall and to identify tools that may help us to track progression and to monitor um, some of the impacts and effects of therapy. All right, so tell us a little bit about Alzheimer's disease, if you could, in just a few words. You know, what are we facing here in terms of what does it look like and how important is it to the population? So Alzheimer's is extraordinarily important. We've all heard um, estimates of millions of people in America being affected with Alzheimer's at present, and with the baby boomer generation aging, the risk that if we don't find effective treatments, there may be as many as 30 or 40 million Americans facing Alzheimer's disease in decades to come. So those are statistics. Um, if one looks at individual patients, one can see Alzheimer's disease as being a tragedy, mm. where somebody who was highly functioning, interactive, able to um, perform social and personal functions, loses the ability to form new memories, retain new information, and with progression, loses the ability to function independently and eventually becomes completely dependent on other people over a period that may vary from 5 to 20 years. So it's really a disintegration of both the intellect and the personality, ultimately. Absolutely. And at the end stages, the person suffering from Alzheimer's is essentially helpless in that they are dependent on other people to provide um, basic needs that are necessary for daily functioning. So you mentioned that you really were interested in finding markers for predicting, really, Alzheimer's disease, and presumably those markers would help us to prevent it. And, and what role does genetics play in, in those markers that you're mentioning? So genetics is a very important and interesting factor. And we're all born with a particular set of genes, and the um, assortment of genes that we have determines a number of different things that might happen to us during life. Um, Alzheimer's disease is no exception, and there are different types of genetic influences on people's risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Some of these can be very, very 
um, extreme or um, strongly predictive, and these are associated with um, rather rare families who are at risk for developing young-onset Alzheimer's disease in a familial fashion. In this sort of scenario, multiple people within a family um, will be affected, and the age at onset um, is usually under the age of 50 and very often in the 30s and 40s. So in these families, the fact that there's a mutation in a gene really causes Alzheimer's disease. Absolutely. And there are three... Um, genes that were identified in the 1990s that are responsible for young-onset familial Alzheimer's disease. Um, these are genes called APP, um, P- presenilin-1 or PSEN1 and presenilin-2. And we've learned a lot about the function of these genes, and there also have been initiatives to identify families who are carriers of these genes to form research networks that will help us to better understand how these genes lead to this very aggressive young-onset Alzheimer's disease and how we can offer um, these folks um, some therapeutic interventions. If you think about these families, if we take... You mentioned that it was rare that one would have such a mutation would actually cause Alzheimer's disease. What percentage of Alzheimer's disease is caused by those genes that we just talked about? So the the usual estimate one sees is 1%, perhaps 2%. Mm -hmm. So very rare. So very rare. Right. And yet, those cases really help us. Those people really help us. And their changes really help us understand what's going on in the rest of the population. They certainly do. Um, One example is that one of the genes involved in young-onset Alzheimer's is a gene called APP. Um, It turns out that there's a variation of the genetic structure and the protein structure of APP that was identified um, in a large-scale study in Iceland. And it turns out that people who are carriers of this particular variant of Alzheimer's, a variant of APP, may actually be um, protected to some extent from developing Alzheimer's disease. So these three genes um, are very important in our conceptual understanding of Alzheimer's. Now, in addition to these causative genes, there are other genes that increase one's risk for Alzheimer's disease. What do we know about those? So we've known for many years that in general, Alzheimer's has some degree of association within families. People with um, large families that have been studied will often report that there are several members within a family who come down with Alzheimer's. Again, here we're talking predominantly about late-onset Alzheimer's um, with the onset of symptoms after the age of 65. Until the late 1980s, we didn't have good ways of trying to figure out um, what the genetic factors might be within these sorts of extended families. And there have been a number of research advances in how we do genetics that have enormously expanded how we can identify genes against this sort of background. So part of this background as well is that people within a certain family may have one, two, four, five members who develop Alzheimer's disease. Um, There may be other people within the family 
who perhaps are at risk for Alzheimer's but don't develop Alzheimer's. And this has to do with a concept called penetrance. Um, Some genes are of low to intermediate penetrance, meaning that the expression of the gene during during one's lifetime may be variable. And so some people who are carrying a medium to low penetrant gene may not actually come down with the disease during their lifetime. So with that as background, there's been an enormous search for genes that are associated with the risk of what has been called late onset or sporadic Alzheimer's disease. And we now know that there is at least one major gene that accounts for a fair amount of that risk and a lot of other um, minor genes. Right. And, And so when one thinks then about one's risk of having Alzheimer's disease and you eliminate those causative genes, it's clear that there are probably a number of genes that could conceivably increase one's risk, but one knows very little about that because one doesn't know about penetrance, except for very few cases. It would be difficult to predict how big the risk was. Um, Right. So there will be an... uh an error or some degree of uncertainty around telling somebody your risk by age 50, 60, Mm -hmm. 70, and so forth Mm -hmm. um, is such and such um, if you have a certain kind of genetic complement. So one of the goals of genetics is to try and come up with as strong a set of predictors as is possible. And um, this has influenced the way in which more recent genetic research has been done. Um, Some of the more recent methods include something called genome-wide association studies, or GWAS. In a GWAS, the idea is to look at thousands, um, up to actually a million or two, of genetic variants across one's entire genetic complement or genome, and to simply compare how common variants are in people who have a particular medical condition versus people who don't, so to compare cases against controls. Um, As we've gone into um, GWAS studies further and further, it turns out that there are common variants with relatively low penetrance that individually may, may have very small effects. Perhaps if there are a number of them acting together, the effect may be a little larger. To tease out some of these variants and some of these effects, GWAS studies now will extend into many, many thousands of cases and controls. Some of the more recent GWAS studies in the Alzheimer area have included 90,000 people who have had their um, genetic complement determined. So there's one, though, variant that probably deserves mention. Our listeners will have heard of this concept of APOE4. Can you talk a little bit about APOE4 and maybe APOE2 as kind of helping us understand risk? Right. So APOE was discovered before the era of GWAS, and APOE is a gene that comes in three different variants or flavors, for want of a better word. Um, The variants are called APOE2, 3, and 4. The most common of these in the population, um, in Caucasians at any rate, is APOE3. And because we have two copies of every gene, um, most people will be 3-3. Some people may be 2-2, 2-2, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 2-3, 
or 4-4. Mm-hmm. Um, it's turned out that from a number of studies um, in the uh, 1990s, people who had the E4 gene, either as a single or um, as a double copy, um, were at higher risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. And at that stage, it seemed as though um, this had something to do with one of the key proteins in Alzheimer's, the amyloid beta protein. And so a number of studies were done looking at how common the E4 gene is in cases and controls, in families, and then in different populations around the world. It turned out that in in Caucasians, the um, frequency, the percentage of people in the general population who carry an E4 gene is about 20%. Um, The number of people who carry two copies, E4, E4, is um, about 1% to 2%. Mm-hmm. The risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, if you carry a single copy of E4, the lifetime risk increases by about two to, two to three times. If you carry a double copy, E4, E4, um, estimates vary, but the lifetime risk is somewhere between about four to tenfold. So this is not insignificant. It's a potential risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. But I want to emphasize the word risk. You haven't said causative. Right. You've said risk. So there's an increased risk, but there's no, there's no, there's no ability, and it would be inappropriate to say that having a copy of E4 means that you'll get Alzheimer's disease. That's, that's quite right. And so in addition to saying that if one compares cases and controls, one can see an increased representation of E4 in people who are affected, one can also do the opposite. And there are a number of people with completely um, (coughs) intact memory and cognition in their 90s who carry an E4 gene. And there are even some E4 E4 carriers in their late 80s and 90s. So um, (coughs) having one or two copies of the E4 gene certainly doesn't predict anything inevitable. Right. So when we go to clinic or we hear from people about their concerns about, you know, whether they have a gene that causes Alzheimer's disease, and you hear this all the time, if someone comes to your clinic is concerned about a gene in their family, what kinds of advice do you give them? So the, the background I would Um, want to explore is what is the family history. Mm -hmm. In the unusual situations where I sometimes will be faced with somebody who had a um, brother or sister or a parent that actually had a neurodegenerative problem like Alzheimer's, sometimes in fact the diagnosis may have been wrong, um, but let's say someone claims there was an Alzheimer case with onset in the 40s or early 50s, Um, I would take a very careful family history, and I might consider exploring things further. Mm -hmm. Um, In that sort of instance, exploring things further would involve trying to find somebody who is symptomatic and do some sort of genetic testing in that person. Um, We don't like trying to do genetic testing in somebody who has no symptoms for a variety of reasons one of which is that we may not be able to interpret the genetic findings perfectly clearly. So, so that's one situation. Somebody comes to see me and they have a family history of very young onset Alzheimer's in one or more family members. 
The more common scenario, somebody has a parent, um, a brother or sister who has or had Alzheimer's disease, had onset in their 60s or 70s. Again, it's worth taking a family history to get an idea of how big was the family if there were 10 siblings and one out of 10 came down with Alzheimer's disease. Um, this isn't necessarily something that you know, sounds like um, it's going to lead to very substantial genetic enrichment. Um, having a family history in one's parents, assuming that they lived to an age where Alzheimer's might have developed, is probably more significant than having a history of Alzheimer's in a cousin, for example. Right. So I'll try and take the family history as clearly as I can. And then I would talk to the person themselves about um, what they would hope to learn and why they're interested in um, exploring the testing any further. And then one might have someone come to your clinic and say, uh, Dr. Glasgow, I sent my DNA off to a commercial source for information, maybe 23andMe, and I got this report back, and it says I have this thing called E4. What do you, what do you say to them in the context of that kind of discussion? So th that's a very interesting question. Um, here the horse has kind of left the stable, and <clears throat> while companies such as 23andMe um, are able to do this sort of testing, the amount of information and the amount of support that's provided to somebody who then learns their um, APOE4 genotype um, is not as good as it could be. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I would in this situation, I would try to explain um, the concepts of risk, the concepts of penetrance of a gene, um, get some idea of the patient's age, their own history of potentially other risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, the extended family history, and I, would do, I might do some type of cognitive testing in the clinic if they want to um, be assured about their own cognitive abilities. But I guess the answer is a single result from 23andMe doesn't mean that that person needs to worry that they're somehow predictably going to get Alzheimer's disease. The reality is there's a context, there's a family history, there's their own feelings about further testing, um, and quite frankly, there's their clinical status and their age all to be considered before one starts really beginning to seriously consider the possibility that you know, maybe I'm at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, and even then, risk as opposed to certainty. Right, absolutely. And so we're able to come up with slightly better um, predictive models if we factor in age, gender, um, and APOE, um, and family history, and importantly, ethnic background. Um, so somebody who is non-Caucasian may have a totally different risk associated with um, APOE. In people who are of Latino heritage, Mexican-Americans, um, the frequency of the APOE E4 allele, or gene variant, is much, much lower um, in 
Caribbean Hispanics, um, it's a little higher than it is in Caucasians. In African Americans, um, it's similar to slightly higher than in Caucasians. And in a number of these other populations, we actually have a much smaller genetic database to be able to do really good um, risk counseling. So risk counseling at, at the moment is an estimate and um, it's an estimate where we're working to try and make it more and more precise, but it's never going to be a certain um, all or none kind of estimate. So for people who are concerned from just uh, their experiences, uh, their family history, data they've gotten uh, one way or the other, it sounds like you would recommend that they speak with their physician. And if uh, that person agrees, perhaps with a genetic counselor, to better understand what we're really talking about when it comes to genetics and Alzheimer's disease. I think that makes perfect sense. So if one learns um, that you're a carrier of an E4 gene, and let's say that you're aged 70, uh, what are you going to do? And I think this would be one of the questions to pose ahead of somebody undergoing um, genetic testing. It might be that someone who is at, um, who feels that they're at greater risk of Alzheimer's disease might decide to change their diet, to exercise more, to take charge of their vascular health, and possibly to look out for a research study. So knowing that there is an association of APOEE4 with an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease has allowed us to try and identify people who are in the earliest stages of Alzheimer's, meaning where pathology has begun to develop in the brain, but there are no clear symptoms. And in these sorts of people, we may be able to test therapies that are aimed at preventing the onset of symptoms. Again, this is very much in a research mode at present, and we don't have the ability to engage thousands and thousands of people who come forward with APOE results in clinically meaningful research studies right now, um, but at some point this will have a bearing. Dr. Glasgow, we thank you for your work and, we, uh, and your research and your clinical work and uh, keep it going because we need your advice and we need your insight and your wisdom going forward. Thank you so much for being here. It's Bill Modley for the Brain Channel. Thanks for being with us.